0: Uh, the Gospel of Mark, uh, Mark chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses uh, 6b to 16, the second half of verse 6 through verse 16 this morning. So, Mark chapter 6, reading from the English. Standard Version Translation, beginning in the second half of verse 6. And he went about among the villages teaching. And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bag, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been Raised. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the opportunity to open up your word this morning, and we thank you for the privileges we have as Christians in this country to be able to do this thus far in our history without any real hindrance. And yet we know, Lord God, that uh, this time in our lives, uh, this situation for us as American Christians is really unusual in the history of the Christian church to help us to treasure our freedoms and to make the most of this time to learn from your word, to be fortified in our faith, and Father, above all, to recognize that your call is upon our lives, to be salt, to be light, to this generation. In Jesus' name, amen. You notice that the title is uh, begins with Successful Disciples, and I... I Even in giving that the title, I I realized I have a great reluctance to actually apply the word success in any description of Christians or in any description of the work of the church. And, And the reason for that is because of all the culture's ideas about what success means. Success in our culture usually implies the reaching of very concrete, specific, measurable objectives. But how does that relate to the calling to the disciples to go out and to follow Jesus in this world? This past Thursday, I was uh, down in Pasadena on the campus of Providence, Providence College. I was sitting in on a lecture series by Dr. John Gamble. He's a systematic theology professor at uh, Reformed Presbyterian Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And so he was their guest lecturer. And he was preaching and teaching on the life and ministry of John Calvin. So, at the height of Calvin's ministry in Geneva, Geneva, Switzerland, hundreds of French Protestant refugees were pouring into the city of Geneva because of the extremely harsh persecution they were experiencing in France. The King of France had declared Protestantism to be illegal. Calvin himself had fled France in 1536 as a very young man and as a very young Christian with an execution order hanging over his head, basically, shoot on sight which was never lifted during the rest of his lifetime. Now it's almost 20 years later. Calvin is pastoring both a French-speaking congregation filled with all these refugees, and in his seminary that he's established, he's training French-speaking candidates to become pastors who are going to return to France and pastor illegally the Protestant congregations in their home country. By 1561, the French churches were asking Calvin to send them 90 pastors because the Protestant churches were growing remarkably under this severe persecution. Yet, here is the reality of Calvin's work, which ought to affect our understanding of the word success. As early as 1553, five of Calvin's former students were caught and burned at the stake. But as the Protestant church continued to grow, it became the policy of the monarchy to send assassins at night to the home of these Protestant pastors in order to kill them in that manner, in order that their congregations would not be there to protect them. On more than one occasion, Calvin had widows fleeing from France into Switzerland to Geneva who would show up with their blood-stained nightgowns as the only clothing they had, the blood of their own martyred husbands. It would become the case that fully one-third of the men that Calvin would train and send back into France would be martyred for Jesus. In such a world, under such circumstances, the meaning of success does not conform to the patterns of this world. And this is why, in considering the training of Jesus, that Jesus is giving to his disciples and sending them out on this mission, we must see this. Success lies in one thing. Faithfulness The calling. And that's our main benefit from this passage this morning as we read it, as we look at it, as we study it. Success in our Christian lives is not reaching some set of measurable objectives that we have set for ourselves, but it's faithfulness to what Jesus has called us to. Now, here we see this worked out in the lives of the disciples. Uh, Something new is actually happening in terms of the ministry. Uh, The disciples have been in the school of Christ. They have been in the seminary of Jesus. They've been with him in rather constant proximity, constant fashion, watching and learning for him for about two years now. And so now it's time for them to go forth and to do ministry in imitation of what Jesus himself has done. This is in preparation for the time when Jesus is no longer going to be with them. Uh, There's still so very, very much for them to learn So what we see in this section, in terms of that, can be analyzed into three parts. We can look at the commission that Jesus gives them with respect to this mission. And then we can look at the character of this mission as they fulfill this mission. And then we can also look at the impact of this mission upon the elite of the culture who become aware of it. So in the first place, I want us to consider the the mission of the culture from verses 6 through 11. Now, the mission is like the mission of an an ambassador. Uh, That's what Jesus is sending the disciples to do. This is kingdom work. The disciples are now functioning as apostles, ones who are sent out, but the role is very much akin to what an ambassador is supposed to do. Uh, In this regard, Jesus is preparing his key followers for the time in which the kingdom work will be completely commissioned and committed to them, without his physical presence being with them. So even how they are to go out now without his physical presence, without his personal presence, it's in order to see that even when Jesus is not physically present with them, Christ is still Lord over all that they do. This this mission has everything to do with the disciples' understanding the true transcendent nature of the lordship of Jesus Christ. And it shows up in two ways. First, his authority. Uh, Jesus gives them authority over the supernatural opponents of the kingdom, Uh, the demonic spirits who molest so many in Israel and the surrounding pagan nations. So in verse 7, we're told that they'll have authority and power to cast out the unclean spirits. Now, note that this would authenticate their ministry in a very substantial way. Because although demonic exorcism was practiced by Jewish religious leaders, um, it's rather obvious that the effectiveness of Jewish exorcist was exceptionally low. Uh, otherwise, we wouldn't see so much demon expulsion done by Jesus. Uh, we wouldn't see... If the Jewish exorcists were successful, then there would have been very little need for Jesus to come along and do it as well. But the ministry of the apostles here is so authenticated because they are, in fact, quite successful. They're able to cast out demons even as Jesus cast out demons. There's no reported failures on this mission trip. They're far superior to what the Jewish exorcist would ever claim to do. So there's authentication in terms of their power over the supernatural. Now, there's a certain aspect of this, this ministry against the supernatural that looks forward to the apostolic ministry after Jesus is ascended. When the apostles are planting churches all throughout the Roman Empire, uh, the demonic presence in people is going to show up. For instance, you know, Acts chapter 16 you've got the slave girl who's possessed with the spirit of divination. And there you have the Apostle Paul casting out that demon. But far, what was far more necessary, and what was far more frequent in so many ways, was in fact doctrinal error that the Apostles say is demonic in its character. There was constant pressure, constant temptation on their lives to be less than what they should be, but there is very specifically... Doctrinal error, but all of it falls under the, the statement that the Apostle Paul gives in Ephesians 610 to 12, where he says, "...Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, put on the full armor of God, that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness." Against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So, in a kind of general sense, the apostle is saying the real battles that we face as Christians is against things we can't see, that are supernatural in nature. That there's a real spirit in this world who's directly opposed against the progress of the kingdom and against the lives of Christians themselves. But the doctrinal aspect of it is mentioned by Paul in 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. So what we see described in terms of the mission of the apostles as they go out, this power over the supernatural, uh, we can see from Paul's pointing to doctrinal demonic teachings, why this is so important. You can be held captive to the demonic by being captive to false teaching as much as if you were possessed by an unclean spirit. Most New Testament demons, when you study the demonism you find in the gospel accounts, most of those made people sick or physically disabled in some sense. So, they affected people physically. But false doctrine, false teachings, false ideas that pervert the truth, that impacts people spiritually and eternally and can even drive them to hell. Listen to what what Jesus says, Matthew chapter 23, as he's bringing his woes against the Pharisees. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, that is a student of your teaching, converted to your teaching, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. So, in any case, this power over unclean spirits is a guarantee that the apostles will be able to defeat the power of demonic doctrine as well and the apostolic ministry that's coming in the future the responsibility to protect the church now the second way the lordship shows up is in the fact of jesus providential care the providential care that he gives them now this care that he's going to provide is so that they do not need to take along any extra provisions for this mission that's the nature of his instructions They are to be minimalist on this mission. They are to take only the bare necessities and trust that Christ will give them everything else that they need. That is why they're not supposed to take along anything extra, just one set of sandals, one staff only, basic clothing on their bodies. Now, this, in fact, in the New Testament world, was highly unusual in terms of travel. The the bag that Jesus refers to was a traveling bag in which you normally would put extra food, extra clothing, even extra sandals. And it was not unusual to have a second staff as well because uh, walking with two staffs, not uncommon. But it was also the case that a staff always had a multi-purpose kind of function, not just for walking, but for self-defense. And so it wasn't unusual to have a second staff. But in this case, Jesus is saying one only of all this stuff. They're specifically told not to do this work of mission on normal terms. These were special terms to teach the apostles that even if Jesus was not physically with them, they would be fully cared for. Now... It was a lesson in completely trusting the providence of God, the providence of Christ. It was a lesson to say to them, I will not be with you, but I am still fully Lord over all of your circumstances. The practical importance of the apostles being trained and tested in this way is because of the future course of their ministry. Many times these apostles, except, of course, for Judas, were going to be facing persecution. They were going to be fleeing at times for their lives. Sometimes they would flee with nothing other than the clothing on their back. They needed to recognize that Jesus Christ, no matter what their circumstances, sovereign and Lord over all would yet be able to take care of them. Now there's a third aspect of this commission, Uh, They're traveling in pairs. Now, there's lots of reasons to do this, a lot of very practical reasons, because of the mutual help, uh, because of their need for fellowship. Uh, It becomes an apostolic pattern that you see in the book of Acts. But there's a theological reason here uh, concerning the nature of their specific ministry at this time. They are bearing witness with respect to the kingdom of God, specifically to Israel. And in Jewish law... And therefore, in a common understanding, it was always required that there be the testimony of at least two witnesses to anything in order for that thing to be considered true or valid. And so Jesus sends them out in this way, in a manner that was in accordance with the custom of the law, so the apostles could be bearing an actual legal witness to Israel. And that then explains the fourth aspect of this commission, their acceptance or their rejection wherever they went. Uh, Now, the disciples knew that they could expect the common hospitality that was common in the world in that day. Jesus tells them, though, a very strict rule, stay put. Whoever accepts you, stay there until you leave. Now, that rule was given because it was certainly possible for a wealthier patron to come along and offer you better hospitality than where you're staying. Jesus wanted to make sure that the apostles never did that, that they would never show some kind of preference for the rich over those who were less well off, as well as the fact that he never wanted his ambassadors to think that they were somehow entitled to better treatment because they were ambassadors for the kingdom, and we know the disciples were prone to that. We know that uh, later we'll read in the Gospel of Mark that they're going to be jockeying for position. Who's going to sit at your right hand and your left hand when you come into your kingdom? So this specific requirement to stay in one place is to accept that hospitality as humble and as common as it might be and not be tempted to accept provisions that are somehow better. But what if they were not received? What if hospitality was not given to them? What if they were not received in the city or village where they came? Well, verse 11, Jesus tells them to shake off the dust of their feet in any place that does not accept them, that does not receive them, because as this was a common Jewish sign of judgment, these cities are going to come under judgment. Jesus sends two witnesses to present a true testimony of the coming of God's kingdom. And if this valid witness is rejected, then judgment is being pronounced against that place. In fact, in the parallel passage in Matthew, chapter 10, verse 15, Jesus says this, Truly, I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. Then the character of their mission is what is given to us in verses 12 and 13, where Mark writes, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons, and anointed with oil many who were sick, and healed them. Now one of the chief observations we can make about this training mission is, is that it has the same character as the ministry of Christ. It is a message ministry and it is a mercy ministry. Uh, We would call this in an abbreviated fashion a ministry of word and deed. Now, this is important because there seems to be an ongoing kind of discussion and debate uh, over that kind of an issue of what the real task and calling of the church happens to be. But first notice that the apostles were sent out in order to preach a message of repentance. Now, of course, none of Mark's readers would think that the only word they said to people was repent. Uh, Rather, the word repent there signals going back to Mark chapter 1, verse 15, where we have a description of the ministry of Christ. Uh, There, Jesus comes into Galilee. He proclaims the gospel of God, saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So their message was virtually identical to the message of Christ. They were calling upon their fellow Jews to see that the... They were calling upon them to hear and to see that the gospel is about the coming of the kingdom, that the time has been fulfilled. They are to repent of their sins And they are to believe in this good news. Now, of course, we well believe that included in the message was consistent reference to the fact that Jesus is in Himself the promise of the kingdom. So, their message repent. Repent and believe in the gospel. It reminds us of something that's very important with respect to the church today. In fact, in in reading some of the older commentators. They were pointing out how it was very important in their day in the 19th century and earlier. Every place where the gospel has gone in Western Europe and the United States, where the country has been in some sense, at some point, Christianized, the gospel message has experienced a downgrade in terms of its preaching, which is to say that the message that is presented becomes less and less the powerful call that Jesus gave, that the apostles gave to repent, to more or less, hey, I've got some really good news for you. God loves you. And you just need to know this because it will make your life a whole lot better. The message of the Gospel, if it is not a message about repentance, is not good news. The, The reason why we need to grasp that is in the context of the message of the gospel that's presented, in the context of what the New Testament tells us the gospel is, Jesus came to die for sin. Not just the penalty of sin, but he came to die for the penalty and the power of sin and the presence of sin dominating people's lives. Jesus said in John chapter 8, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And the Bible tells us that there is no worse master over any human life than sin. Sin has never blessed anyone. Sin, consistently working itself out in a person's life, punishes a person again and again and again. There may be passing pleasures of sin, as it says in the book of Hebrews, but they are passing pleasures. They're not enduring pleasures. They are not eternal pleasures. In fact, the passing pleasures of sin give way to a punishment and a presence and a power that absolutely destroys the person who, in fact, cannot escape from it. That's what the Gospel tells us. That's what the Bible tells us. And therefore, if there is no repentance, if there is no biblical turning away from sin and turning to Jesus Christ, if there is no turning away from the power that has controlled you and surrendering to the One who has loved and cared and done for you, then there is no real conversion. And what bad news it is to preach a Gospel that says just simply believe in Jesus and live like you please. Because it's a false gospel. And it doesn't save those who are crushed and broken by sin. That's why in countries who have not been like Europe and the United States, far-reaching places of the world where the gospel is now just making its headway, the gospel that says repent, makes so much sense. Repent of these things that have controlled you and made your life broken and miserable. But the gospel doesn't say, repent. You've got the power to do so. The gospel says, repent, because in what Christ has done for you and in what Christ has done in you, repentance becomes a reality that can take place. That's why the apostle Paul said, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It's why the Apostle Paul said, look, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a repentant kind of working out. Why? Because it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to do his good pleasure. That is good news. To give someone the hope that the one who died for you is also the one who will work to transform your life so that which has imprisoned you can be broken. And the one who has loved you and cared for you not only pays the penalty for your sin, but he breaks the power of reigning sin to set the captive free. If there's no call to repentance if there's no call to change, if there's no call to have a life that's turned around and to pursue godliness, if we were somehow supposedly safe from the punishment of sin but still remain enslaved to sin, this would not be very good news. Now, the second aspect of the apostles' ministry was that of casting out demons and, and healing those who were sick. They did this in close imitation to what Jesus did. Now, Jesus never used oil never anointed anyone with oil as he healed people. But oil was commonly used in medicinal settings, and it also had the spiritual symbolism of the working of the Holy Spirit. And so the apostles would approach in their ministry uh, with this intent. And God blessed it. In any case, this aspect of the ministry was an indication of bringing genuine mercy to those afflicted, a genuine deliverance from miserable conditions, a genuine, miserable improvement to their earthly setting. And they did this as works of ministry, as ambassadors of the kingdom. These were not some random acts of kindness. Think about that phrase, random acts of kindness. If something is random, it means that there's no good reason for it. But if there's no good reason for doing acts of kindness, then doing them has no real meaning, other than the fact that in the final analysis you're doing it because it makes you feel good. What the apostles were doing were missional acts of kindness in line with their mission with respect to the kingdom. These were good deeds that were authenticating the kingdom and authenticating the truth that God does care about all aspects of our fallen condition. And in this regard, such acts of kindness and mercy have tremendous meaning. They are done to honor God and to care for others, even to show God's care for them. Now, to return to the question, should the church be committed to both word and deed ministries? Are deed ministries a genuine part of the calling of the church? Or does that just get us into the social gospel? How do we answer this discussion and debate? Well, I think there's a simple answer. There's certainly a much more complex thing, and it's the complex stuff that gets into the big debate that we have in the church today. But for me, here's just the simple thing. The calling of the church ought to be based upon the ministry of Jesus and the way the apostles are imitating what Christ did. And then consider what Paul says... Galatians 6.10. And to me, this is the guiding principle. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. So there's a calling in in life to, to do good to everyone with the priority being the people who are the family of God. It's like what James says, In chapter 2, verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. And then, of course, we could add the example of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus taught, essentially, your neighbor is someone in need that you have the ability and opportunity to do good for. So, in that sense, word and deed ministry belong to the church. It's the example of Jesus, the example of, of the disciples in their imitation of his ministry. Now, the last thing I want to do is to connect the mission that Jesus sends the apostles on to its impact upon the elite of the culture. And this is where I bring in verses 14, 15, and 16. King Herod heard of it. The it referring to the ministry of the apostles as they go out and do this stuff. Heard of it. For Jesus' name had become known. Some said... John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work with him. in him. Others said he is Elijah. Others said he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. I want us to note that Jesus and his ministry gets noticed by King Herod as a result of the preaching and teaching and healing that the apostles are doing. We're going to consider the story of John the Baptist and King Herod in the next section of Mark's narrative. The only thing now is I want us to visit a very simple idea. It is not always the case that elite members of a society are impacted positively by the work of the kingdom. The importance of our realizing that is the great tendency, not only in our day and age, but the great tendency in so many times in church history for the people of God to think that the rulers and powers in government, that the elite of society, upon hearing the gospel, somehow perhaps showing favor to the gospel, will in fact be the ones who bring about some kind of progress for the gospel in the world. I want you to recognize that the elite members of society are often not impacted Positively, by the work of the kingdom. Herod had months of time with John the Baptist and then kills him. Now he hears about Jesus. He gets mixed reports. He draws wrong conclusions. Herod gets one last chance with Jesus. It's the very morning of the day that Jesus is crucified. And it does him no spiritual good. The last things we read about Herod are recorded in the book of Acts by Luke. Some three to five years after the resurrection of Christ, Herod will do violence to the church. Those are Luke's words. Violence to the church. He will have James, the brother of John, put to death the first of the apostles to be martyred. Not long afterwards, not long after that murderous act, Luke records that an angel of the Lord strikes Herod down. And he dies a very, very painful death in full rebellion against God. So the story of Herod is immediately followed. It immediately follows the mission of the Twelve it had to be a reminder to the Roman Christians. It is much the pattern of this world to misunderstand the word of the gospel and what Jesus came to do. Opposition and persecution are to be expected. Even when those in high places have the Christian witness right in front of them, it often works not to the salvation of the elite but to the ultimate, their ultimate condemnation. That's why the bottom line for us as Christians success must never be measured in terms of what it looks like we've been able to accomplish for the sake of the kingdom in this world In terms of somehow seeing the growth of churches or the spread of the gospel, we can't measure success that way. Success is only measured by our faithfulness to our calling as Christians. Let's pray. Father, help us to stay faithful in the school of Christ, learning from Him, learning from Scripture, desiring, Lord, to do all that you've called us to do. And in the final analysis, Lord, Enable us by your grace, by the working of your spirit, to be faithful to what Jesus has called us to be, his disciples, disciples who would be salt and light in this world. No matter what persecution or trouble or affliction that we may encounter, enable us by your grace to be faithful in this world. To the glory of Jesus. Amen.